1: I know the human being and fish can coexist peacefully.
2: Hello and welcome to The Bunker Daily. I'm Dorian Linsky. My guest today is a writer and comedian who won the first ever National Press Club Award for humour. He's been writing The Borowitz Report, a satirical news column, since 2001, which currently lives at the New Yorker website. He's also hosted the storytelling group The Moth and co-created The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air back in the day. His new book is Profiles in Ignorance, How America's Politicians Got Dumber and Dumber. Andy Borowitz, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me. There is a lot of research in this book. There are, there are pages... Pages of endnotes. You've been digging in the archives. Did you have fun looking for the the most striking examples of uh, of ignorance?
1: Well, I did. You know, I I'm known for making things up. That's my day job because the Borowitz Report is is a satirical news site. So I make up fake stories every day to make fun of the news. And this book was a real departure because everything in it is is true and factual. And so. Once I decided to cross that Rubicon and write a piece of nonfiction, it became really important for me to make sure that all my facts were correct. Because the first thing somebody might raise an eyebrow about is, well, you're a comedian and you make things up. So how do we know that all of this stuff isn't just a figment of your imagination? If only that were so. But no, the the people I wrote about, the politicians from American history, actually did do and say all these idiotic things.
2: It would be quite hard to write some of the dialogue fictionally to compare with a kind of uh, an improvised Sarah Palin monologue, for example.
1: (laughs) Well, you know, I came at this project initially as a comedian. I thought, well, if I can have the funniest things that Sarah Palin and before her, her, ideological forebear Dan Quayle say, and I just collected all that stuff, that would in and of itself be a funny book because these are the greatest comedians of the last 50 years. So I thought it was just going to be kind of a lighthearted romp through the follies of American politics. But what happened was when I was researching the book, a lot of patterns started emerging, and it really turned into more of a funny history book than a comedy book. It, It does tell a story of the last 50 years. And it tells it really through their words. But I try to connect the dots and show how America got to this place where we have really such woefully ignorant politicians in positions of great power.
2: Well, before we get into some of the specific examples, I want to ask about like that this focus on ignorance. And quite often, I think the actions of public figures, politicians, also certain celebrities, can be explained sort of quite simply by the fact that they're not very bright. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet, I feel that there is almost something um, taboo about that, and not just because there is a lot more concern about you know the potential sort of ableism of of certain certain words, but almost like that that just seems like a mean thing to say. So this distinction between Stupid and ignorant, and you're focusing on ignorance. Like, do you think that the people you're writing about, there are different? There are lots of sort of different levels of intellect, and you can have somebody that has a degree from a very good university but seems very ignorant, and then there are some people who you suspect they don't have a lot to work with in the first place.
1: Well, you made a really crucial distinction, and it's it's tricky because a lot of times people think well well right now on the internet if you don't agree with somebody you just say they're an idiot. <laughs> That's what an idiot means now. It's somebody I don't agree with. And actually I think it's really hard to assess how bright somebody is. I know that sounds like I'm being overly generous or tolerant or whatever but I'm not as I say in the book I'm not a neurologist. I haven't given any of these people iq tests and i'm really not talking about iq or sort of raw brain power what i'm talking about in this book is intellectual curiosity or lack thereof i'm not even talking about education i'll give you a good example somebody like harry truman who is one of our better presidents i think certainly dealt with a lot of difficult decisions and did them well he was not educated in the conventional sense his parents couldn't send him to college and so He really just read voraciously, and he would talk in cabinet meetings a lot about war and war history and the classical era and stuff like that, and it became very useful to him. Now, another guy who was a successful U.S. president, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, his predecessor, he was conventionally educated, but he was a bad student. He really didn't focus on his studies at all. He was a C student at Harvard College where he went. But he was tremendously intellectually curious. So when unprecedented problems arose during his term of office, his several terms of office, like, for example, the Dust Bowl, which was an ecological disaster, man-made disaster, not unlike climate change in a way, because it was something that we really brought upon ourselves he surrounded himself with experts, and he listened, and he tried to synthesize all that information. And that led to a solution. They were actually able to fix the Dust Bowl. So I guess what I'm focusing on is ignorance versus intellectual curiosity. And that's really the topic of my book.
2: I mean, Reagan was was famously incurious. (laughs) Yes. But you know, didn't didn't sort of certainly didn't hurt him at the ballot box. But George H. W. Bush's vice president Dan Quayle was derided. Like I was at I was at school at the time, and I remember that like over here, like in the British press which wasn't massively concerned with American politics, but the, the comedy value across <laughs> the Atlantic. You know, most famously, I think probably people would remember the sort of misspelling potato, but there were many, many more that you chronicle in this book. And it it did damage his career. He did become a joke figure. I mean, are those days long gone when the right sort of gotcha question or the, a bad enough gaffe could really damage you? Do you almost sort of long for the days when someone's ignorance would be would be held against them like that?
1: Yeah, those days really are gone. And I, I talk in the book about the three stages of ignorance. It's sort of the construct that I put together to try to understand what happened in the last 50 years. And the three stages, which we'll sort of touch on, I guess, are ridicule, acceptance, and celebration. And the ridicule phase encompassed both Reagan and Quayle. And it was a, a period of time And it now seems so quaint because American politics doesn't work like this anymore. But we had a shared collection of facts and information that most Americans kind of agreed about. Like we sort of thought that the Soviet Union dominated Eastern Europe. So when President Gerald Ford said that they didn't in a famous debate, that kind of torpedoed him to some extent. So there was, it was a period of time where if you were an ignorant politician, you had to at least pretend to be well-informed. And this was very good news for Ronald Reagan because he was extremely ignorant, but he was really good at memorizing scripts because that was his previous day job. He'd been an actor and a TV host. And so they gave him cue cards and they said, just learn this stuff. And he memorized the heck out of it. And he was convincing enough that people could say, okay, he could be governor of California and then later president. Dan Quayle was just as ignorant as Reagan, but lacked any talent to overcome that or hide it. So when he was in a debate or making a campaign appearance, his ignorance just was absolutely glaring. And it was at a time in the late 80s when we still expected politicians to know stuff. So when he would say something ludicrous and he, I mean, they're many quotes of his in the book. One of my favorites is that he said, um, and I quote, I've made good judgments in the past. I've made good judgments in the future. I love that, the sort of time travel aspect of that (laughs) quote. And he does, so many of his his comments seem to kind of question the linear nature of time itself, um, as he says things like that. But um, it was a very quaint time. If you can picture a guy being made fun of in politics because he misspelled the word potato. Donald Trump, as president, I think I have the statistics on it, he misspelled something on Twitter about once every five days. And I actually want to see what impact this shift in our attitudes about ignorance and even the understanding of how words are spelled have changed. And I, I went on ABC's website in in America to look at that potato clip of Dan Quayle misspelling potato. And there was in fact a, a commenter, a right-wing commenter who claimed that actually Dan Quayle spelled it properly. And this was just fake news and railroading by the leftist press. So now even things like how things are spelled have become kind of tribal battles in our country. I don't think that's a good development, but that is where we are.
2: and then acceptance we we have george w bush and and, and you kind of explain how almost that you know that he sort of kept, refused the gotcha question and just went this this, this this sort of stuff doesn't matter you know the kind of the um who's who's the president of uzbekistan kind of question. <laughs> yes. he just resisted that now I remember early on in his presidency, lots of jokes about Bush's gaffes. There was a, there were kind of even like joke books, the wit and wisdom of Bushisms.
1: Of Bush. Yeah, Bushisms. Now,
2: obviously, messing up uh, Iraq and Katrina was was much worse than the messing up grammar. And do you think that maybe that's not the case? I mean, it could, be you could say that it, it, it might still be the case that misspeaking and seeming foolish can sometimes make politicians seem more comical and less. Dangerous than they are in the way that Quayle seemed like ignorant but harmless.
1: Well, it's interesting. There was a difference between Quayle and Bush, and you you focused on them very insightfully because Quayle's mistakes and the things he said really fueled the argument that he was not qualified to be president. And actually, in his debate, his famous horrible debate with Lloyd Benson in 1988. He was asked the same question about four times, which was basically, what would you do if George H.W. Bush died and you were suddenly president? And the subtext, which wasn't very sub, I should say, it was like pretty much right on the surface. (laughs) The subtext was, you are not qualified (laughs) to be the guy who has the nuclear codes. And he got so testy about being asked this question three times that he finally made this fatal gaffe, which is he said that he was as qualified as John F. Kennedy to be president. And that led to Lloyd Benson's memorable You're No JFK Smackdown. And that was pretty much the end of Dan Quayle as a really credible political force, although he did get elected with George H.W. Bush because of a very successful campaign, a very racist campaign too, by the Republicans that got him over the finish line. But the difference between Quayle and Bush is that Quayle was still playing by the old rules. Quayle was still playing by the rules of I when I make a gaffe, that's bad news for me. So I'm going to like double down and get snippy and try to dig my way out of it. And because he was so ignorant, it was impossible for him to dig his way out of anything. He was also very nonverbal. So he didn't have any he didn't have that Reagan kind of there you go again witticism, if you can call that a witticism, or wisecrack at his disposal. He just was hopeless at improv. And what George Bush did, George W. Bush did, and George W. Bush, I I show pretty, I, I I would say, pretty diagnostically in the book, was every bit as ignorant as Dan Quill. George Bush really embraced his ignorance. So he actually, that book of Bushisms that was very popular, there's a whole series of them of all of his gaffes, He actually read those aloud and in public performance and got laughs reading his own idiotic comments. And it was really kind of a brilliant political move because he owned his ignorance. He accepted it. And he said, basically, yeah, I don't know very much, but I'm going to surround myself with people who do know things. And meanwhile because I don't know very much, I'm actually much more likable than Al Gore, and I'm much more approachable, and I'm the guy you want to have a beer with. That became the famous benchmark in that campaign. So by accepting his ignorance, he took the whole issue of trying to appear smart off the table. If anything, his ignorance became a signifier of his authenticity and how likable he was. And it was very shrewd because that pop quiz you referred to where he was asked, like, who's the president of Chechnya and all that stuff. He used that as a brilliant pivot because his press secretary, a woman named Karen Hughes, got out and said, George W. Bush is running for president of the United States, not a game show contestant. She referred to the game show Jeopardy, which was like the big, I guess, our our real intellectual game show in this country. And... It was a really brilliant pivot because it was basically saying, you don't want a president who knows a lot of like trivia, like who runs a country that has nuclear weapons like Pakistan. You want a guy who's just has good, a good gut and has good decision making ability. And he, you know, he branded himself the decider. The problem is that decisions do require instincts, but they also do require information. And George Bush surrounded himself with people who were supposedly smart and well-informed, but they weren't really. Like Condoleezza Rice was a very big academic in her world, but she was an expert in Europe and not in the Middle East. She didn't really know the relationship, for example, between the Taliban and Iran and stuff like that, which is kind of critical if you're about to invade Afghanistan (laughs) to know about the Taliban. So it was a real untethering of the concept of a president being well informed and and his presidency because he basically said I'm just going to offload all of that stuff and he was surrounded by people really of of I would say varying pools of knowledge like they didn't they they presented themselves as like we're going to run this government like a CEO runs a company but as you know, like a lot of CEOs run companies into the ground, and that was really the George W. Bush presidency.
2: Well, he did, I mean, he didn't work for me personally, but, but like, like you said, <laughs> he, did, he did have a kind of, um, a lot of people found him rather amiable. And reading about Sarah Palin, I was reminded of, and, and that was sort of um, just predated the Tea Party mm-hmm. movement. And that seemed to be when ignorance got sort of, Really nasty. There seemed to be a huge rage and contempt there, and racism. And what, yeah. sho- and what really shocked me was that you had people like Bill Kristol and uh, Steve Schmidt, who are now, you know, been for a few years now, real fierce critics of Trump, um, thinking she was absolutely wonderful. <laughs> so do, you, do you feel that some of these features they didn't know what they didn't know what they were dealing with? Because she seems like such a a gateway figure now.
1: Yeah, I mean I really did see her as a gateway to Trump in retrospect. I mean, who could have predicted at the time that she would lead to Donald Trump? But one thing and I'm I'm sure I'm not the first person who's made this observation, but one thing that occurred to me when I was doing all this research is that if you remove knowledge from the picture, that leaves a void. And so what fills that void? And in many cases what fills that void is in addition to falsehoods and lies, propaganda is anger, hatred, and violence, because you suddenly have a tremendous sort of vacuousness of, you know, we we don't agree on anything, we don't have any facts in common that we all sort of subscribe to. And so that's where, you know, a, you know, three word slogan like build the wall, or in the case of the UK, take back control, (laughs) you know, it really can fill that void. And it's very compelling, because learning a whole bunch of stuff about geography and math and science is complicated and really hard work. But learning a slogan like build the wall is really easy. And it seems to explain a lot. It seems to, you know, I'm I'm hearing now about all the anti- migrant rhetoric coming from Suella Braverman over in your country, you know, its it really seems to explain, at least for the moment, a lot of what's wrong with, mm. with your country. And all of your complaints are very easily distilled into a three-word phrase. And Sarah Palin, you know, she sort of took up where George W. Bush left off. George W. Bush did sort of open the door for her in that he created these very kind of binary oppositions like, are you with us or are you with the terrorists? I and mean, that's an us versus them statement. And right after 9-11, that seemed pretty unassailable because, yes, we, were, we, we didn't like people to be with the terrorists because they'd just attacked us. But on the other hand, we were with the terrorists in Afghanistan when the Soviet Union was occupying Afghanistan. We were, in fact, with Osama bin Laden. He was on our side. So when you start actually bringing up unfortunate bits of knowledge or information like that, suddenly things become much more nuanced and more complicated. And that has not been a feature of American political life for some time. We we prefer the three-word slogan. And, you know, Sarah Palin, Definitely spoke about Barack Obama as if he was an other and a foreigner. And it fed right into Donald Trump's birtherism and... The demonization of Obama, which was, you know, just straight up racism. But it really it really worked. And you can see how from the Tea Party and all that angry rhetoric, you you were ready to elide and to build the wall. And Mexicans are rapists and all the things that Donald Trump said when he announced for the presidency in 2015.
2: Well, there's so much to say about Trump, and there's a lot about (laughs) Trump in the book. But one thing that really struck me, which I hadn't thought about before, is, he loves telling people how smart he is, <laughs> while someone genuinely smart like Mitt Romney is trying to play it down. So why does Trump want to claim and succeed in claiming intelligence and even genius if it's so stigmatized? Is it a kind of is he is he boasting of a kind of intelligence that is far more I, I know sort of virile and American than than book learning intelligence.
1: I think you've really nailed it. I think that, yeah, Mitt Romney, I pointed out in the book, you know, he's one of the most educated recent politicians we've had in America. He he graduated at the top of his class, has a business and law degree. I mean, incredibly smart guy. And he unfortunately tries Tried gamely to play like an everyman, <laughs> it just never worked. I mean, he, there's some really cringeworthy stuff of him online, like trying to perform the song "Who Let the Dogs Out," and I mean, he just he had no common touch whatsoever, and he he tried to dumb himself down. And it never never worked. Donald Trump, I would say, falls and again, like it's it, it's this is going to sound very pat and reductive, but. He kind of falls a little bit into what Tocqueville was talking about, like the man of action, you know, the art of the deal. And the art of the deal, that book that was written in, the, I guess, 1987, really was the template for the Trump myth that eventually led to The Apprentice and then led to his presidency. You didn't see like Donald Trump in that book or on The Apprentice sitting around in a smoking jacket. You know, reading Dickens or anything like that. He was always just getting out of an airplane, getting out of a helicopter, telling somebody they're fired. He was not a contemplative person. But there's nothing um, really threatening about his kind of intelligence because, first of all, as these these brilliant researchers showed, and I quote their work: Donald Trump speaks in shorter words than any previous president of the United States. His actual presentation is incredibly I wouldn't say dumbed down because I it comes he, he comes by it so naturally. He didn't, unlike Mitt Romney, he never had to dumb down his language. It's already pre-dumb. But I think that that his connection with his voters up until recently, where I, I think it's it's jumped the shark a little bit, at least through his election in 2016, his connection was very visceral and and, and non-intellectual, and it was based on grievance. And what's interesting about Trump, for a white guy who grew up rich and had every advantage in life, his grievances are very authentic and they're very, very deeply felt. He we'd have to like do some, you know, psycho history of him. And and I did read his niece's wonderful book, Mary Trump's wonderful book about him. He had a tremendously unhappy childhood. I think he was. Very unloved. And as a result, he has an enormous chip on his shoulder. And
2: finally, like you you've got these three stages, but I felt like we were kind of it was I was following a journey and then but it ends sort of by falling off the cliff. Um <laughs> the America rather than the book. Um and then the now we're in the realm of disinformation and conspiracy theories and the sort of proud outright denial of fact. Mm-hmm. Is ignorance still an adequate word to describe what is happening if you look at a, a Marjorie Taylor Greene for example, where where her connection to reality just seems so uh, fluid <laughs> uh, that that I can't I can't even remotely compare her to you know to a Dan Quayle or, or whoever. It seems like there's a whole epistemological zone. Uh, yeah, that all of these people have it's, entered. <laughs>
1: well, but it's you know, but it's it's true. Although it's always been there. Like if you look at and I invite you if you have the courage to read the blue book of the John Birch Society from the 1950s. And you realize like there's a straight line from that to QAnon. So Americans like or not always have been eager for a good conspiracy theory too. So. Like it or not, Marjorie Taylor Greene is part of a rich American tradition of believing nonsense. So it is. she's new in that she, she's certainly different from Dan Quayle in that Dan Quayle just had a huge vacuity of knowledge. It just was a huge, gaping Grand Canyon where the knowledge was supposed to go. And she actually has knowledge, but it's it's cuckoo knowledge. And it's like she thinks that Jews have space lasers, which, of course... I would love to have, and I feel very deprived that that's not true. But she she has signed up to lots of nutty stuff. But yeah, we've had this tradition of, of nuttiness and conspiracy theories. What I'm hoping for, and again, this might be my misplaced optimism, is I talk about these three phases, and I'm hoping that the fourth phase of ignorance is what I call correction. And I don't know how this will come about, but I do know that we had in world history, at least in the history of the West, we had like the classical age where we were so interested in science and math and architecture. And then that all came crashing down and we had the dark ages. And then eventually, centuries later, we had the Renaissance. So I don't know if we really want to wait centuries for this thing to to come around, but I don't think the evidence is that history moves in a straight line. I do think it's cyclical. And I think we're in a very, very dark cycle right now. And I think at some point, our only hope is that there will be some rejection of this kind of vacuity of knowledge. Thank you for joining me, Andy Borowitz. Thanks so much, for joining.
2: Profiles in Ignorance, How America's Politicians Got Dumber and Dumber is published by Simon & Schuster. And thanks to you for listening. A new episode of The Bunker is available every day of the week. If you enjoyed this conversation, please help spread the word by telling a friend, sharing it on social media, or reviewing it on iTunes. You can also support us on Patreon, where you'll get episodes early, without ads, and with bonus goodies. Take care and see you soon. The Bunker USA was written and presented by Dorian Linsky. The producers were Jacob Archfold and Alex Reese, with assistant production from Kasia Tomashevich. The lead producer was Jacob Jarvis, with music and audio production by me, Jay Bailey. Group editor is Andrew Harrison, and our marketing manager is Gina Richard. The Bunker USA is a
0: Podmasters production.